what is striking about the Sanchez law, uh, I think, is that um, it places far greater emphasis on the need to educate uh, Spaniards uh, in what it calls its dem their democratic history. Um, so it regards all those who defended the Second Republic as Democrats. It regards all those who fought for the Republic during the Civil War as Democrats. It regards all those who were victims of Francoism as Democrats, all of which, are, in my opinion, is highly debatable. If only mine were the last drop of Spanish blood to be spilled in civil strife. God willing, may the Spanish people at peace, so replete with extraordinary virtue, at last find homeland, bread, and justice. Who among today's Spaniards could possibly disown this quote? The man who uttered it in November 1936 shortly before being shot by firing squad, in whose tombstone the epitaph is inscribed, is José Antonio Primo de Rivera. The current left-wing government of Spain has different plans for his bodily remains. As part of its so-called Law of Democratic Memory approved last summer, Primo de Rivera will be disinterred from his tomb at what used to be called the Valley of the Fallen, renamed Valle de Cuelamuros by the same bill, incinerated, and his ashes will be relocated to the San Isidro Monastery in Madrid. So what does the government of Pedro Sanchez fault Primo de Rivera for? Although he ended his life on the aforesighted conciliatory note, and even though he lived through only six months of the civil war from prison before being executed by the Second Republic who viewed him as a threat, Primo de Rivera remains a standard bearer of 20th century Spanish fascism, someone historians see as having laid the ideological groundwork for Franco, who went on to rule for 40 years upon winning the Civil War. Primo de Rivera is the latest target of a sweeping effort unfolding since the previous socialist government in the late 2000s to settle the scores of these tumultuous decades of Spain's history. These bills do various things. First, they rename streets and monuments. Second, by, sec by setting up DNA banks, they enable families to trace, find, and give a proper burial to Republican victims of Francoist repression buried in mass graves. And lastly, they reframe the way history is taught, depicting the Second Republic as the unimpeachable defender of freedom and democracy against Franco's fascist villains. This week, we will navigate this treacherous topic by inquiring about Franco's exact place in Spain's public consciousness, exploring the demographics of this issue, and questioning whether Spain's history can be so neatly framed as a black or white story of good versus evil. We are delighted to be joined this week by two distinguished Hispanists. On one side of the line, we have Michael Reed, a longtime regular at The Economist and the author most recently of Spain, The Trials and Tribulations of a Modern European Country with Yale University Press. On the other side of the line, we have with us Nigel Townsend, a professor of history at Complutense University in Madrid. Now, as always, please rate and review on Common Decency on Apple Podcasts and send us your comments or questions either on Twitter at UndecencyPod or by email 
at undecencypod at gmail.com. And please consider supporting the show through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash undecencypod. Enjoy the show. So today I am delighted to be joined by two distinguished Hispanists, Hispanists to address the issue of Spain's memory wars. On one side of the line, we have Nigel Townsend, who is a professor of history at Universidad Complutense, where much of his work focuses on the history of the Second Republic, the, the Spanish Second Republic. Um, Nigel recently published the Penguin History of Modern Spain. And on the other side of the line, we have Michael Reed, who is currently a senior editor at The Economist and the author of that magazine's Bello column on Latin America and Spain. And he is uh, also fresh off publishing a book, this time with uh, Yale University Press. Uh, the book is called Spain, the Trials and Triumphs of a Modern European Country. Um, and just to get right into the heart of the matter, I, I would like to begin with a very sort of uh, a brief question, starting with N Nigel and then turning to Michael. Um, you know, it is conventional wisdom that uh, that Spain transitioned to democracy in 1976. Franco has been gone for for as many years. Uh, Spain has successfully integrated into the multilateral West. Why does Fran Francisco Franco remain to this day such a polarizing figure in Spanish society, Nigel? Um, well, he was a dictator, that's why. And uh, um, Spanish society was divided down the middle during, as a result of the Civil War. So people who are conservative uh, tend to believe that there was a reason for the uh, uprising against the Republic in July 36. Uh, they believe that the military at the time was trying to reestablish public order and defend private property and private businesses and farms and so on. And therefore, uh, people who are conservative who may consider themselves uh, today to be Democrats still have a certain sympathy for the insurgents um, and therefore identify with uh, um, the Francoists. Um, whereas people who are on the left and uh, identify with the democratic promise of the Republic, you know, would tend to uh, be hostile uh, to Franco. So he is a divisive figure, but at the same time, I would say it's not a figure that's really talked about much today. It's really the politicians that are stirring this up. I mean, I've spoken to my students about Franco and they said the general attitude of people today was one of indifference. I mean, people see him as having been in power a long time ago and really not relevant to Spain today. Um, all they did say was that, well, you find very old people may have a very strong opinion about Franco, and there's a very, very small minority of far-right uh, uh, um, people, uh, uh, you know, who are young, who also may have a certain sympathy for him. But they said that these people are, are, are atypical. Yes. And, and Michael, in uh, working on your recently published book, have you encountered uh, this sort of uh, elite hysteria that Nigel seems to be describing, the fact that it's mostly politicians and highly educated people that are... Uh, that are uh, quarreling over uh, over Franco when, in fact, the average Spaniard uh, really doesn't care all that much. Is that what you've encountered? Yeah, well, one of the reasons I decided to write the book was because 
I was a little fed up with a lot of the commentary in the foreign media uh, that tends to describe uh, or ascribe rather um, Spain's uh, problems uh, to Franco. And I think, you know, for most Spaniards, um, Franco is ancient history, frankly. Um, uh, I mean, it's it's true that he was such an important figure because he was a dictator, as uh, Nigel said, but also because he, he ruled for 36 years. It's a very long time. Um, and But I mean, you know, he died uh, um, almost 50 years ago and the country has changed out of um, uh, all, almost all recognition in, in those uh, uh, five dec decades subsequent to his death. There are, if, you know, there are a small number of nostalgics, but I think um, it's a very small number. Um, I, I, there has been um, a, a certain interest amongst politicians of the left in this century to try and use um, the memory of Franco um, uh, for current political purposes, and uh, and that I think is um, is. Um, it's complicated and troubling in some ways. Yes, and this has uh, really set up the, the tables very nicely for our current conversation, which is mostly going to focus around the some of the legislative efforts uh, of the current government of Spain and the socialist government prior to the current one. Um, and, um, and on this note, I wanted to start with Nigel um, by reminding our audience uh, the in fact, that the, the current left-wing uh, coalition government led by the socialist prime minister, Pedro Sánchez, has uh, mostly built on a uh, previous bill uh, that was passed by the Zapatero government back in 2007. And in fact, Sánchez's bill, uh, in, a, in a way, substitutes uh, the, the, the previous bill. Um, could you, Nigel, could you describe in the fairest possible manner what grievances Sánchez and Zapatero before him are seeking to channel with their respective uh, pieces of legislation and really to redress? And how will how will these bills fare in addressing them as opposed to just letting time uh, do 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 the, the healing, uh, so to speak, Nigel? Uh, well, uh, the first thing the Zapatero bill from, or rather law from 2007 wanted to do was to address the issue of the, the mass graves. That is to say, um, the overwhelming majority of Republican victims, both during the Civil War and afterwards, were not given decent burials. So the law provided funds uh, for families and associations uh, so that the, um, the people who were victims of the uh, insurgent and, and then Franquist repression could be given a, a decent burial. Um, they also improved um, things like pensions, um, uh, social care, medical care um, for the families of Republican victims, something which the amnesty bill of 19, amnesty law, sorry, of 1977 had done. And, and as Michael points out in his book, the amnesty law uh, and, and other measures provided over 21 billion euros to the um, Republican families who were victims of uh, Franquist oppression. Um, so uh, the first thing they were addressing was was the issue of a you know a decent burial for the Republican victims, uh, improving their state support. Um, it, it also declared that the sentences of the Francoist courts were illegal. Um, 
It also called for the removal of Francoist symbols uh, throughout Spain, such as street names and, uh, for example, the famous equestrian statue of Franco himself in the heart of Madrid. Um, and it also encouraged public institutions to, um, um, to um, provide the Spanish uh, populace with a greater knowledge of their uh, what's called democratic memory, um, with a view to, as it calls, healing the wounds uh, of the past. Um, and uh, in doing this, it decided that uh, the mausoleum to Franco in the, in, uh, at the Valley of the Fallen uh, should no longer uh, exalt the uh, Francoists, and it should be run as a, a regular sort of place of, of worship. So uh, this was an initial attempt to to uh, address these issues. And the the law uh, under Sanchez actually went a lot further. It felt that there were certain shortcomings to the Zapatero law. It was going to improve certain aspects of the law. But um, what is striking about the Sanchez law, uh, I think, is that um, it places far greater emphasis on the need to educate uh, Spaniards uh, in what it calls its dem their democratic history. Um, so it regards all those who defended the Second Republic as Democrats. It regards all those who fought for the Republic during the Civil War as Democrats. It regards all those who were victims of Francoism as Democrats, all of which, are, in my opinion, is highly debatable. Um, and it also criticizes the so-called Pact of Forgetting during the transition. So um, the law is an implicit criticism of the transition. Um, so it, it believes there was this kind of Pact of Forgetting that, that uh, the past was being ignored by the politicians of the transition, and it takes a much more radical approach to the Valley of the Fallen, uh, whereby it has to be renamed now as the Valley of Cuelgamuros, which is the place where it's uh, placed, and uh, it has to become a place of uh, uh, democratic education. It has to be uh, re-signified, as it puts it, as a place of democratic education, and it's going to kick out the religious order that holds a mass every day for Franco. Um, so, uh, this is a much stronger law than the Zapatero law. And I don't know if Michael agrees, but when I read it, um, it struck me that it was much closer to the outlook of Podemos than to that of the Socialist Party. It read uh, for me very much as a Podemos uh, initiative. Yeah, I think, uh, yes, I, I mean, I think, I think that's true. And we should remember, your listeners should remember that Podemos, which emerged as a uh, as a party on the far left um, in protests over um, austerity uh, uh, and the impact of the financial crisis on Spain uh, at the beginning of um, 2012-13, and then um, that Podemos actually has a radical critique of the transition to democracy. And Spain's transition to democracy, which used to be seen as a model and very successful, has become much more controversial. And that's because the world's attitude to these things has changed, essentially. I mean, uh, I, I, it is a misnomer to say that um, there was a pact of forgetting at, at the heart of the transition. What there was was an amnesty law, which had been a demand of the left of uh, the descendants of the Republic since the 1950s, at least. Um, and under that amnesty, for example, convicted killers from ETA, the Basque terrorist group, were released. Um, and, but what there also was, and this was more implicit in the transition, 
was an agreement across the political spectrum not to use the past as a political weapon, as a weapon for current political advantage. And given how polarized and divided Spain had been for many decades before that, um, uh, that uh, was an essential element in allowing the country to move very swiftly and pretty successfully to a, a, a normal Western European uh, democracy. Um, but uh, in the past 50 years, uh, thinking about these questions of um, amnesties has changed. And uh, uh, the so-called transitional justice uh, uh, movement, um, which uh, now has considerable support in, um, in international law, argues that crimes against humanity can never be amnesty. Now, that's actually a very far-reaching um, claim, and I think it's been insufficiently uh, uh, debated, because usually in these kinds of circumstances, you have very messy and difficult and unpleasant trade-offs between reconciliation, peace or reconciliation, truth and justice. And it's very hard to have all three. In an ideal world, one would have all three. They're all good. The question is, it's very hard in, in the real world to achieve those things. So Podemos and the, and the, uh, and the law of democratic uh, memory are kind of pushing back uh, against the idea of the amnesty. And in fact, the democratic memory law includes whether this will ever happen, I doubt, but it includes a provision to appoint a special prosecutor to look at the crimes of, um, of um, the Franco regime. And it uh, recognizes that the amnesty law um, conflicts with uh, international, current international law. Now, um, uh, you know, everybody involved um, is dead, apart from a few kind of policemen at the end of, um, uh, who tortured at the end of Franco's regime. Um, and uh, so this is, this is really gesture politics, right? I mean, just to sum up, I don't want to go on too long, but I mean, what Nigel's just outlined about the, uh, about the Zapatero government law of historical memory and the obligation put upon the state to um, help relatives find uh, uh, help the descendants of victims of the civil war and the repression to find the remains of their relatives. That seems to me to be wholly necessary and desirable in a democratic society. Um, but um, when you start getting into uh, the government wanting to encourage a particular view of history, I think that's very um, swampy terrain. Yes, and I, I would agree with everything Michael has said there and add that uh, that is one of the big differences between the two laws. The Sanchez law is saying that this should be introduced into the school curriculum um, and I think that's very dangerous uh, indeed, especially when there's a fundamental contradiction at the heart of this law and that is that it paints all supporters of the Republic as Democrats and I think that's quite wrong. Uh, I think a minority of the parties under the Republic up to 36 were genuinely democratic. 
Um, the major right-wing party of Theta had a deeply ambiguous attitude towards democracy, if not hostile. Um, the Socialist Party, under the leadership of Largo Caballero, had uh, a very ambiguous, if not hostile, attitude to democracy itself. So the two major parties of the Republic were actually not very democratic at all. And then if we get to the war, um, uh, the Republic of the 19th of July, 1936, uh, has nothing to do with the Republic of the 18th of July, 1936, because it is engulfed by a revolution, a very uh, sui generis revolution, because it's not one revolution, it's a revolution of anarcho-syndicalists, of socialists, of communists, uh, and even of republicans. So uh, the revolutionaries really take over the republican zone, and you could argue that that's the, the major reason why the Republic loses the civil war, because power becomes so uh, deeply fragmented that there are, by the end of 1936, six competing administrations or governments in the Republican zone. Um, and uh, if you're going to talk about human rights abuses, which the Sanchez law does at great length, then you have to look at the Republican zone. And in the Republican zone, we have the biggest massacre of the entire war at Paracuellos, uh, which was, it wasn't organized by or initiated by, but it was certainly facilitated by a man who was a deputy during the transition and in fact played a very important role during the transition. And that is the communist leader, Santiago Carrillo. So um, uh, if you're going to look at um, violations of human rights, which is what the law talks about continuously, then you also have to look at the, the Republican side and to paint uh, the communists um, or the anarcho-syndicalists or the left-wing socialists as Democrats is, in my view, quite wrong. And also to paint the, the guerrillas who fought in Spain against the Franco dictatorship after the war as Democrats is also, in my view, a mistake because a lot of these are, in fact, uh, communists and uh, therefore Stalinists. Um, so, it seems to me this law uh, presents a very uh, rosy picture of the Republican forces uh, before and during the Civil War, and one which really doesn't uh, accord with the historical record. Yeah. And uh, just since we're uh, on this topic of the, uh, as, as you as you have uh, outlined, the one-sidedness of these two bills, right? The fact that they're scrutinizing the crimes and the atrocities committed only by one side, uh, of the the war, the winning side of the war, which went on to govern the country for another forty years, but doesn't, but, but these bills do not scrutinize uh, what happened on the other. And and I guess we'll we'll sort of circuitously work around uh, this topic and then get back to the larger question. But I want to give Michael the chance to address this because obviously, uh, in your reporting shows that the official messaging by the right wing parties in Spain, the PP of the, uh, in the center right and Vox even more forcefully on, on the right. Um, these parties claim that the, the attempt to settle the scores of Franco's crime it, it, crimes ignore the many equally egregious crimes committed by Republicans during the Civil War, some of which Nigel has just outlined. Uh, just how bad was political violence and religious persecution under the Second Republic, Michael? Do these those conservative critics have a point, and is this part of uh, uh, is this a part of the civil war that should be equally known too? Well, I think um, you know Nigel's just explained very eloquently um, um, that that was indeed the case, and I think one of the really interesting things that's that's gone on in Spain 
particularly in this century, is that in the, in the, during the Franco regime, almost kind of necessarily, the history of the Spanish Civil War was written by foreigners, by outsiders, um, uh, especially Britons, actually. Um, uh, and there's, I mean, people talk about, you know, a so-called fact of forgetting, but there's been an incredible flowering of um, study, research, uh, writing, and debate uh, about all these subjects. And, you know, Nigel's book is, uh, and well, Nigel's been in Spain so long, he counts as an honorary Spaniard, I think. Maybe he is a Spaniard, I'm not sure, but uh, 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 by passport. But um, uh, uh, his book is one of many by historians working in Spain, Spanish historians, that have given us a much more nuanced picture um, of the Civil War uh, than the, uh, and its aftermath, than the, um, uh, the kind of one-dimensional view that it was purely an anti-fascist struggle. I mean, it was an anti-fascist struggle, but it was also, um, as, as Nigel has said, the, um, uh, there were many divisions on the Republican side, and there were many people on the Republican side who were not Democrats. They, they wanted to install communism, and of course, just as Hitler and Mussolini intervened to um, uh, to facilitate Franco's um, uh, insurgency, uh, so Stalin intervened to support so the Republic. Now, if we move to the position, the debate today, I mean, I think particularly with the Sanchez law of democratic memory, I, I see it as a big missed opportunity. I think for Spain to move forward, you really have to have a conversation between the descendants of the two sides, you know, between the two main parties, the Socialists and the, the PP, the Popular Party. Um, and the PP has a very defensive position on this issue because it knows that, I mean, they're dying off, but I mean, um, it knows that some of its supporters um, uh, supported the Franco regime. Uh, uh, and it knows that, you know, most Spaniards think that the Franco regime did bad things and did good things as well. Um, I mean, the, um, the, after 20 years of um, poverty and, and, and failed economic policy, um, uh, there were then 20 years of, um, uh, of dynamic economic growth and the modernization of the economy and the formation of the middle class um, uh, under Franco. And that... Um, uh, and, and people, some people remember that. I think Vox is um, clearly, uh, uh, it includes perhaps more people who might be nostalgic for the idea of the dicta dictatorship. But Vox actually talks about Franco remarkably little. Um, it's, um, I see Vox as uh, much more, first, its growth as a response to um, the mistakes of the PP in government um, before Sanchez, and above all, the um, attempt by the separatist leaders in Catalonia to break away from Spain um, against the constitution and against the law. Uh, and, um, and that prompted alarm in Spain that the country was, going to, was being forcibly broken up, and it prompted this nationalist reaction in Vox. And if you look at Vox, I mean, they're much closer to 
to the ruling parties in Hungary and Poland and uh, Italy uh, than they are to the you know the small hardcore of um, Franco and nostalgics. And their main emphasis now is on um, conservative values um, in a society that has seen very very big changes um, uh, in in um, uh, culture on social matters. Uh, um, and also on illegal immigration. And in that respect, they're very similar to the hard right in the rest of Europe. Yes, and, and thank you for this sort of overview of, um, of uh, the political spectrum and how all of these different parties are uh, grappling with, uh, with the past. Uh, but just to maybe sort of uh, re-anchor this conversation in the broader issue of, um, you know, uh, I, I think there, there's been something really interesting that both of you have uh, have drawn attention to, which is that this these bills are a critique of uh, the transition, of the way that things were done, of this pact of forgetting, of this amnesty law, the fact that Spaniards of all political persuasions came around in 1978 and voted in this new democratic system that, that entailed that they were going to turn the page on the uh, 45 previous years, right? So, um, I want to I want to uh, ask um, um, you know it was this well, let me let me phrase this correctly um, in 1977 uh, Spaniards agreed to let Franco's repression go unpunished in exchange for legalizing heretofore illegal left wing parties such as the Socialists and the Communists and retrospectively was that settlement doomed from the start in other words were laws like Zapatero's and Sanchez's fated to happen at some point. Uh, Nigel. Yes, well, the amnesty was not granted so that the socialists and communist parties could be recognized. I mean, the socialist party was, had already been recognized. Um, and the recognition of the communist party was a, a separate matter, really. I mean, and that had already been recognized in many cases. Uh, you know, the communists were in the, in the Cortes at the time. Um, and some of the most eloquent speakers in favor of the amnesty were in fact communists, people like Marcelino Camacho, who was head of the workers' uh, commission at the time. Um, and what he saw very clearly was that there was no point fighting over the past because it would only undermine the transition. Um, it was only going to cause more strife and, and, uh, and confrontation, and it wasn't actually going to help at all. And of course, he also appreciated that, um, uh, as Michael points out in his book, that really nearly anyone who was anyone on either side, with the notable, notable exception of Santiago Carrillo, was, was dead. I mean, the people who were really responsible for the repression on both sides were nearly all of them were dead. Um, there were a few uh, eminent figures on both sides, including, it has to be said, the first prime minister of the post-Franco era, Aris Navarro, was notorious for organizing the repression down in Malaga during the Civil War. It was a very uh, brutal repression. So there were a few people on both sides, but really, I mean, the vast majority of people on both sides who were responsible for the repression uh, were now dead. So um, the amnesty really was a, a, a matter of saying we shall turn the page and we shall look to the future rather than look to the past. And I agree with Michael, this was actually um, the right thing to do. It was a very pragmatic decision, and it was accompanied, as, as uh, we've mentioned, by a 
uh, compensation for uh, Republican families who had been victims of the uh, Francoist repression. So I see the amnesty as being a very positive move um, and one which facilitated the transition. It's, you know, the foreign commentators often see the transition as being uh, pretty straightforward, you know, a fairly smooth operation, but it wasn't at all. I mean, um, you know, I've talked to a lot of people about this, and there was an article in El País not so long ago by the historian José Álvarez Unco, who said, you know, we were on the edge of the precipice the whole time. You know, I mean, nearly 700 people were killed for political reasons during the transition. And if you read the memoirs of um, the editor of El País at the time, Juan Luis Cebrián, he says the same thing, that he feared for his life uh, for many years uh, because he thought he could be bumped off by uh, right-wing gunmen or, or, or uh, people from ETA. Um, and, you know, he had to take uh, security measures. And he said it was a time of great anxiety for him and, and a lot of the people um, who were active in, in public life. Um, it was a very uncertain time. And uh, when you look at how it unfolded politically, this is uh, extremely clear. You know, so, uh, when Suarez comes to power in 76 as prime minister, um, he has this idea that he's going to engineer this top-down transition. He's even going to draw up the constitution. Uh, and in the end, he has to negotiate with the opposition. And he gives way on one thing after another, after another. And for example, he never contemplated legalizing the Communist Party. But in the end, he does, because he realizes that in practical terms, uh, in, in order for the... Uh, new democracy to have sufficient support, this is absolutely essential. So uh, the transition was a very uncertain period. Uh, it was never um, preordained. It wasn't clear that it would succeed. Um, and it really was touch and go at times. And therefore, when you place the amnesty within this context, uh, to me, it makes complete sense. And I think it was a very constructive and sensible measure at the time. I want to be mindful of time. Uh, I know that Nigel has uh, uh, another commitment coming up at six. So uh, just wanted to, to wind up the episode on, on this note and really thank you both again so very much. I'm going to remind for the sake of our audience uh, that uh, Nigel Townsend is a professor of history at the Universidad Complutense uh, and he recently published The Penguin History of Modern Spain and Michael Reed. Uh, has a new book out as well, uh, Spain, the Trials and Triumphs of a Modern European Country. Thank you both so much for joining us on. So the episode on Spain's memory wars with Michael Reed and Nigel Townsend is over. Uh, Francois, you weren't uh, with us uh, to record the episode. You've gotten a chance to listen to it after the fact. What did you make of some of the points that were raised? Yeah, it's super interesting to see how... No, because this is still pretty recent history. This happened, you know, within 60 years. You still have a lot of people who have memories of, of, of Franco. Fewer people who have memories of the Civil War. But, you know, within a generation, everybody has, or maybe a generation or two, everybody has a connection to this issue. Um, what I found really interesting, actually, is I actually thought coming into this, this topic that it would be a lot more of a, you know, a salient issue. People would be talking a lot more about it. You know, it would be like dividing families into, you know, that kind of vision you have about those kind of strong national conversations around tricky topics like that. And actually, what, you know, what I got from this conversation is this is a relatively a low salience issue, um, you know, but... Take, take, for example, Vox, 
I was expecting Vox to be, you know, fully on the on the Franco bandwagon and and saying, you know, how we can't attack its legacy and so on. And actually, what comes out is, you know, they're they're, they're more like they're, they're, I don't know. It's it's not really their jam. And maybe you think a lot actually about the way the Rassemblement National approaches the figure of Philippe Etain. Um, you know, the party was funded, created in in the in the seventies by a few people who work in the kind of far right space and um, some that Vichy space as well. But nowadays, it's really not their topic. They don't really care at all about what happened to to Philippe Etain. It's not like they're going to defend him or condemn him. They just have completely moved on. So I find it interesting to see that it's it seems to me that in Spain, um, a lot of people actually have moved on from this topic. Yes, and. Um... You know, and I think building on that point, uh, what really strikes me about the politics of this issue right now is that, you know, Vo- you mentioned Vox, right? Vox has been uh, taking a really interesting stance on these on these democratic memory uh, laws. Well, the, the latest one was passed last year, so, so this is the freshest one of the two. The, the prior one was from 2007 when Vox wasn't yet founded. But Vox has been uh, taking the stance that, you know, we shouldn't relitigate history. We, sh- we should let the, the dead rest and we shouldn't disinter old hatreds. So, in fact, they're actually not celebrating Franco at all. Um, they're just claiming that, you know, the Civil War was a, was a was a fratricidal uh, uh, fratricidal Armageddon. It should never have happened. There was no good versus evil. Both sides were committing um, uh, wanton violence against the other. Um, but Vox is saying, you know, that is that belongs to the past, and we turned the page with the democratic transition in 1978. We turned the page, and we made this sort of pact of forgetting. And we should never, never relitigate that history because, you know, it kind of goes back to, I don't know if you've, uh, if this, this strikes you as, as familiar, Francois, but actually in uh, classical Athens, in, in classical Greece and Athens, there was a, um, a practice whereby whenever there was a civil conflict, a civil war, the, uh, the elites of the city that had gone into a civil war agreed not to utilize that conflict for political gain in the future. Uh, in fact, there's, a, there's, a, there's an old Greek saying to describe this, this sort of pact of forgetting, and that's exactly what uh, the politicians that, uh, that orchestrated the democratic transition in Spain in 1978 did. They agreed to let the war and Franco's dictatorship in the dustbin of history not to be relitigated again ever. And that is actually the stance that Vox has taken. So Vox, you, you know, it's interesting you were, you were you were talking about Vox. And to me, what strikes me is that Vox is claiming the space that the centrist parties used to claim back, back in the day that, you know, you should not relitigate this. So I thought that was very interesting. And let me ask you, let me ask you something else, uh, Francois, as a, as an, as an outside observer, you know, there's there's obviously the very famous quote by I forget who said this, uh, but finally uh, the the quote that you know Africa starts in the Pyrenees, right? Um, France has always looked upon Spain 
as you know a land of sort of gypsies and 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 uh, bandoleros and and bullfighters. Um, what um, do um, do you think? Um, um, do you think that uh, the the civil war still influences politics in today's Spain, or do you think it's something totally disconnected that has no influence? Well, to be fair, it seems to me that um, fans of Game of Thrones will see what I'm saying, but the politics of, of Spain and Portugal always seem to be a little apart from the rest of the continent, you know, a bit like Dawn is apart from the rest of Westeros. Um there's a sense that, you know, their conversations kind of stay south of the Pyrenees and, you know, they're not playing as much of an active role in EU politics, for example, and so on. So I think there's, you know, the French are probably more aware of what's going on in, in Italy or more aware of what's going on in Germany or the UK than they are with what's going on um, in Spain. Um, I mean, it, it seems to me, though, that you know, Spain's transition to democracy was was pretty successful, and um, you know, you get tradition. You got a traditional centre right party and a traditional centre left party. You got the emergence of kind of a populist nationalist party on the right. You got the emergence of you know kind of um, a kind of populist left as well. You know, all of those trends are kind of very very normal for a European country. So you know, in, in, my, in my sense, the civil war might be playing maybe more on the memory, on on maybe on the culture in some aspects, but at least from politics to me, it seems that Spain is is very normal. But on the question of how they handle the legacy of all of this, um, I think it's Michael who mentioned it, I could be wrong, but the idea of kind of competing vices or competing virtues here is really important because everybody wants justice to be, to, to be served. Um, and there's a sense that people who have done horrendous things have gotten away scot-free. So that's one vice. But another vice would be kind of relitigating those issues nonstop and in, would be sapping the base for a new democracy. And, you know, there's a case for it now and there's even a stronger case back in the, in the 70s when this transition was still very fragile. Um, so I think it was really interesting to kind of mention that because, you know, we all want justice. We all want peace. Sometimes it's hard to con- conciliate both at the same time. How do you manage to conciliate those competing vices or those competing virtues. And I think it's it's a really important framework to think about those conversations of memory. Yes, uh, exactly. And I think Michael's Michael's experience covering uh, Latin America in addition to Spain was uh, really, really interesting uh, because he sort of brought to bear the example of other Latin American countries that it also had to grapple with what he calls transitional justice. The fact that, you know, when a dictator dies and a new political order is ushered in, you have to judge what happened before. And, you know, I think, as you said, I mean, Spain's democratic transition was by, 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 um, by most standards was a model for the rest of the world and a model for Latin America. And people still... Um, you know, I, I was having a conversation recently with a young Cuban uh, doctoral student who was completing his PhD on the democratic transition of Spain, looking at one specific group of politicians that met regularly during the, those years, Los Tacitos. And this young Cuban is 
infatuated with the democratic transition in Spain. He has, he has tremendous admiration for what was achieved. Uh, and I think one huge, a huge pillar of what was achieved was this pact of forgetting. And what I find tragic is that all these years later, over 40 years later, that pact of forgetting is being undermined, uh, is, is losing its... Um, losing its it's being forgotten. It's been what? Sorry. It's the, the pact of forgetting exactly. is being forgotten. Exactly, and that is that is a little bit yeah. tragic. Um, but it's not unlike some of the memory wars that have happened, even in France. Right? France has also had sort of its own quarreling over collaborating with the Nazis. Right? Pétain, Vichy. Yeah. So, in a, in a sense, this is not this is not wholly dissimilar. I mean, so I, I agree with you. And just to wrap things up here, um, you have these conversations all across Europe. But what I find interesting is, you know, there's kind of a larger movement on the kind of political and sometimes academic left um, to, you know, kind of create a, you know, a very critical vision of one's country history. And, you know, there are some dark pages in French history, dark pages in Spanish history, dark pages in, in British history, which are quite easy to to, to label, but what I found really interesting actually is to see, I went to, to Denmark recently, and there's been kind of a similar attempt to kind of portray Danish history in this kind of lens. So what I'm saying is, you know, um, you know, there are undeniably some historical crimes and some dark pages um, in each country's history, but what I find it interesting is even in countries which we don't associate as having kind of a particularly um, you know, imperialistic or, or, or kind of aggressive history, you get kind of similar strands trying to push those kinds of narratives. So just a, a few words of context. But Jorge, thank you so much for handling this uh, on your own, unfortunately, but you did a tremendous job here. And um, don't don't forget, if you want to listen to the entire conversation with our two fantastic guests and Jorge, you can join us for as little as five euros a month. Plenty of people were doing that last week. Thank you so much to all of you for joining us in this great adventure. And so if you want to have twice as much Uncommon Decency content every week, Please join us on our um, on our um, Patreon accounts, and you'll get much more content. Thank you, Jorge, and to all of you, I say, see you next week.